So, uh, Kristen, welcome back to the show. It's been a long journey. You were the very first interview that we ever had on the podcast. Um, and by virtue of that, um, many things went wrong. Uh, files were misrecorded, uh, technology went awry. Um, but you're back here, uh, ready to actually do what was intended to be the very first episode of this. Um, and I guess all, similarly, ironically, you're actually at the end of a long slate of about uh, three months of recording. So it's good to have you back. Uh, you're going to be covering uh, some of your work on biomechanics today. Yeah. And um, yeah, so how, how would you like to get started? Maybe just a quick reintroduction to yourself and your research. Yeah, no. So thank you for having me back. And, you know, I think it was appropriate the way you talk about how things have failed, because that's going to be a theme about our research. So, um, yeah, but my name is Kristen Morgan. I'm an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the University of Connecticut. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about our work and, you know, human biomechanics and lower extremity injuries and specifically gait analysis. So, yeah, we're excited to be here. Yeah. I was just like, we didn't we didn't fail. We just got delayed by something on the order of a year and a half, which is again, much like research. Uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't quite feel yet. It just, it has this endless process. Um, yeah, it just hasn't happened. It hasn't succeeded yet. It hasn't yeah. failed. It just hasn't yeah. succeeded. Yeah, yeah. It's like not in this world, at least it's, it's, it's out there. It's not in this world. Yeah. But cool. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll hop into the presentation and we'll just chat throughout, I think. So, yeah, so today I'll be talking about um, our work and how we use GATE as a diagnostic tool, and specifically we use it to characterize physical and cognitive impairment. So when I started out, my research goal was really focused on lower extremity injuries, specifically uh, anterior cruciate ligament injuries or ACL injuries. And so what was interesting about this, I probably got into it because growing up, I played a lot of sports, specifically soccer, and ACL is a big uh, injury mechanism in soccer. So what we recognize is about 250,000 ACL injuries occur every year in the United States alone. And what we recognize is that we spend about $1.5 billion on post-ACL treatment and rehabilitation care. So it really is a, a problem on our healthcare system, a burden on it. And what was really staggering to realize is that fact that about 44% of post-ACL reconstruction individuals actually do not return to the previously functional level. So despite all of our treatment and rehabilitation, uh, nearly half of these individuals do not get to where they were before the injury. And so we have to figure out, well, why is that occurring? We're doing all this rehabilitation. Um, we're putting all this effort into this. Where, where's the disconnect? And so that's where a lot of the ACL research is coming in now and, and where we wanted to plant our flag is the fact that we wanted to say, um, we think that we need to develop better metrics to actually characterize healthy um, gait patterns. And so that was kind of where the impetus of our work started. So whenever you start a job and you have a research laboratory, you have to have research goals. And, and so we had established our research goals, and, and these were the three items that we thought we were going to get into. And so the first one was developing automated injury classification models. So we wanted to figure out, hey, can we develop new models that are not only going to classify between healthy and, and um abnormal pathological gait conditions, but also can we actually um, predict injury, right? So we're going to develop these great models and it's going to be perfect. And then the next thing we were going to do is we we're going to say, hey, we're going to do some movement optimization, right? We're going to not only, you know, identify that you're hurt, but we're going to actually fix you and, and develop new rehabilitation protocols that are get you to working better than ever. And then the third thing is we were going to develop these intelligent biofeedback, you know, systems that's going to able to get you back to where you need to be. And again, starting out, this is about five years ago, you recognize that you have these lofty goals 
And then you have to figure out how you're actually going to solve them, right? Um, and, you know, and I think it was also naive because we we're like, oh, we're going to develop these models and we're going to develop these rehabilitation protocols. And, you know, it's only going to take a year or two, right? I mean, it's, this is easy. And then the models are going to learn other models. And uh, by slide three on a podcast five years in the future, it'll be a three slide presentation saying it all worked out at the end. A hundred percent. That's exactly where it is. You know, you've watched enough of these TED Talks and presentations. <laughs> That's how it works out. And when you quickly get into this, this system, you start to realize that, okay, we want to develop these classification models. Well, what are the metrics that you're going to use that are going to be better than what people have done before? And you go, huh, that, that's going to take a little bit more time than we thought, right? And then you go, we're going to develop these novel rehabilitation protocols. And you go, well, people have been doing this work for decades. They've been really good. So what are we going to do that's different? What's your idea? And I go, huh, don't really have one right now. And then, you know, you go, we're going to develop these novel rehabilitation uh, instruments. And you go, oh, that, that would be great, but I have no skills in some of these areas. And and more importantly, what we talked about is like life. You know, we, we plan to do this podcast a year and a half ago. And, and you know, what you plan and what happens are very different. And in our third study we talk about, we got into getting into cognitive work. And at no point in my life did I think I was going to be cognitive work. So, you know, this slide, I, I love it because it, it identifies that you need to have goals, but I kind of laugh because you need to be somewhat realistic and, and recognize that your goals and, and plans are going to change. Yeah, I would say that uh, very quickly, even looking at this slide, uh, the scariest thing on it is still that double integral right behind that uh, that first skeleton. Uh, that, that's, that, that's the one to really look out for. Oh yeah, we, we don't talk about that double integral. <laughs> it's, it's, it's gone. It's like we, we, we just optimized uh, no, no integration. All right, cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, we so to do all this work, we had to have the the facilities and equipment to do so. So, we have a human performance lab that the University of Connecticut was really um, great in allowing us to provide the funding to get us up and running. And so, uh, running. But what we have is it was really kind of a, a cool is that we have state of the art equipment. We have a Vertec instrumented treadmill, and you'll notice that is a split belt treadmill, so we can control each limb independently. Uh, we also have a Viacom motion capture system. We have a 12 camera system. And what's great about this 12 camera system is if you've ever done like video games and you've seen the people, they put on the spandex and they put the dots on them and they run around. That's the same technology we use in our lab. So here's just a video. So we wouldn't necessarily put a marker on a shirt. It moves. But, you know, for thematic purposes, it works. Um, so we have this really cool setup and we, we marker the individual. We put the markers on the anatomical landmarks. We also put EMG so we can measure muscle activation. And typically for men, we would shave your legs. So um, a lot of the men come out looking very patchy after they do these studies. Um, but then it's great. So we, we, get, we put all the stuff on there and then we actually get you on our treadmill and we have you do this motion analysis. So here's what you would look like, uh, fully markered up. And then what's great is our Vicon caption um, camera is gonna allow us to see you, uh, give you a 3D rendering of your movement in real time. So that was kind of the fun stuff. So we always think that we're playing a lot in lab, that we get to do all this work. So now that we collected all this data, we had to figure out, well, what do we want to analyze? And so, like I said, we use GATE. And GATE is a great tool because GATE is the coordinate, requires a coordination of the musculoskeletal and neuromuscular systems. And so the idea is that if you have pathological GATE, it's going to disrupt either one of those systems. And so those changes are going to manifest in your GATE patterns. And so that's why we looked at GATE. Um, and additionally, it's, it's non-invasive. A lot of the gate measures we can, you know, collect are, we can collect them non-invasively. So things like stride time and, and, uh, 
ground reaction force and knee angles, all that stuff can be measured non-invasively. So unlike blood work, which is still minimally invasive, you collect blood and you do a lot of kind of tools and tasks on them and analysis on them. We do the same thing with gait, but we don't go um, any, we're not invasive by any means. <laughs> so the, uh, so one of the things is we'll start to get into the, the study. So we, we looked at gait and we're really excited, but um, the first study, like we said, going back to our main theme was, well, let's develop new metrics that can quantify optimal gait patterns. So we all walk, but you know, if you go to any kind of gait analysis lab and you say, well, what should my optimal ground reaction force be for when I walk? And we wouldn't really have an answer for you. Um, you know, what should be my optimal loading rate for, you know, when you, when I'm running, we don't have an answer for you. You know, a lot of our studies, we take a population of healthy individuals, we take a population of pathological individuals, people with pathological conditions, sorry. And then we just kind of say, oh, well, in this group, your loading rate was higher. And that's great. But if you're coming from a, a clinical standpoint, physical therapist standpoint, you go into physical therapy and, um, you know, you want to get somebody back to healthy. We can't compare your, we can't bring in 20 other individuals, healthy individuals and say, hey, how do you match up against them? So our work was trying to figure out, can we define optimal regions of gait dynamics that we could use kind of as a clinical tool? Um, then the next thing we wanted to do is we want to develop our novel rehabilitation protocol. So again, now that we know what your healthy diagnostics should be, can we develop some rehabilitation that's going to move you into these, these healthy regions? And then the third thing was kind of our derailment where we started to look at the differences between physical and cognitive impairment. So how I kind of got into this work. So my PhD was in computational modeling, uh, you know, the double integral work. And what we wanted to do was we recognized that, um, you know, it was great. We had a lot of collaborators. So we worked with the University of Western Australia and they would actually do the experimental work. And then we would work in our lab at the University of Tennessee. We would actually gen generate the computational models. And that was great. But I even knew that if I wanted to have my own research laboratory, I had to get this kind of experimental um, experience. So I worked with Dr. Brian Norn at the University of Kentucky and there's his uh, biomotion laboratory. And it was great because I finally got that hands-on experience to do experimental work. And Again, keeping with the theme of ACL injury, he does a lot of lower extremity work, specifically ACL injury. He does patellofemoral pain. So uh, people who are runners, that might be more common with them. Uh, but what was interesting about this is he was saying that, you know, after you have this ACL injury, we often have these return to sport metrics. And so return to sport metrics are used to clear you to say, hey, you can get back to where you need to be. And what was interesting is these people were getting cleared to return to sports. But if you looked at their gait, it was really disruptive. So if the person here, they've had an ACL injury, their injured limb, if you can probably guess, is the one closest to us. Um, and then their healthy limb is the one that's further away. And you realize that they're landing on their injured limb with a lot stiffer gait um, than their healthy one. There's a lot more give and compliance. So again, what was crazy to us is the fact that this person has been cleared to return to sport, but they're still having really large gait asymmetries. And that's something that we don't even have to measure. We can just visually see. So uh, what we ended up doing is we started to figure out, well, we really have to fix this because like I said, it makes sense that 44% of these individuals are going to not be at their previously functional levels and then they're going to be greater risk for injury and there's a whole long host of problems. So um, this was kind of the impetus for a lot of the work that we were getting into. So, okay. So if we were going to kind of improve on these models, we had to figure out... Um, we had to have a greater understanding of what the actual problem is. So in post-ACL reconstruction individuals, 
they typically have unresolved neuromuscular function. And what that means really is that they don't produce the right amount of muscle force and they don't produce it in the right, um, at the right rate. So again, if you think about going back to sports like soccer and you're going to have to run, jump and cut, if you can't produce enough force to support yourself and you can't produce the force in the right rate, you're going to have a problem. So uh, what we did is we started to figure out, well, let's figure out what features or, or what variables are most sensitive to these changes that we know are associated with ACL reconstruction individuals. And we identified that they're going to be peak ground reaction force. So if you see over here, we have the vertical ground reaction force profile and the peak force is the largest force that you generate. Um, we also have the loading rate. And so that's how quickly you get up to this peak force. And then we have stride time dynamics. So over time, you know, are you exhibiting the same kind of um, pattern um, from stride to stride? And why this matters is because um, there's really significant consequences to ACL injury. So if you're not producing um, the right muscle forces, you're going to start loading your knee differently. That's going to lead to knee osteoarthritis. And when we think about this population, about most of these individuals tear their ACL are young individuals are 16, 18, 20 years old. And the problem is, is that after you tear their ACL, if we don't correct this problem, 10 to 15 years out, you're going to have the knee that's radiographically similar to an elderly individual. So you're telling me that 30 and 40-year-olds are going to have the knees of 70 and 80-year-olds. So it's a problem. You're telling me that 30 and 40-year-olds are going to have the knee that lets them know when it's about to rain? Exactly. <laughs> They're predictive, right? Yeah. It's all a predictive model. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, so it, that it's really crazy that 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 is what's going to happen, and and so when we think about it even more so, is if you have a knee and that it, it hurts, you're not going to be as physically active. So that also means that um, you know you're you're going to put on weight, you're going to lead to cardiovascular disease. So there's really a lot of detrimental consequences of this. Um, so our challenge was to say, can we first and foremost identify new standalone metrics that allow us to delineate between healthy and pathological conditions and and by standalone, meaning that, you know, we have this healthy region of diagnostics. So if you go into a um, physical therapy office, we can get these measures and really quickly say, yes, you're in the healthy zone or no, you need to go back to rehabilitation. So we start off when we did some autoregressive modeling. Um, and we, we picked this because when we were looking in the research, when we think about gait, everybody's gait pattern is some relatively similar, right? We, we all do the same kind of basic motion. We put a foot down, load it, and then take it off. So the general biomechanics of gait are similar, but it's the subtleties and this variance and the, the noise and data that we thought were going to be effective. So we thought that autoregressive modeling was going to be a great tool because it allowed us to kind of look at the, um, the variance in the noise, essentially. And that's where we thought the, the gold and the good information was, right? So we looked at um, using the ground reaction force peaks and we created a time series out of those ground reaction force peaks. And then we fit a second order AR model to them. And we like the second order AR model um, because it would did fit, you know, just wasn't cool, but um, <laughs> it fit. And it also allowed us to get this really nice visual um, representation of, you know, where you are in this triangle. So the idea that if you had certain gate dynamics, you'd be in one region in the triangle. And if you had different gate dynamics, you'd be in a different region, right? And so we thought it was a really quick visual way to delineate between healthy and pathological gait. So one of the things that we haven't talked about, I keep talking about ACL injury, ACL injury. And the problem when you start on the lab is you have no clinical connections, right? So I couldn't get ACL individuals into the lab. So I was struggling. I was like, oh, we, we got a problem here. So what do we do that, how do we kind of create this pathological gate? And what we did is we have that instrumented treadmill and we have the um, 
we can control each limb independently. And so what we said is, well, let's disrupt their gait. And so what we did is we had one foot move at one speed and one foot move at the other. And then we thought that that was pretty destabilizing. And, and we liked it because not only is it destabilizing, but we could control the magnitude of the perturbation. So we def- decided that a 0.25 meter per second difference between limbs was going to be a good one. And then we also did the 0.05 meters per second. So we did that. And first, so we had all these people come through, healthy individuals, and we had um, analyzed their gait and they all resided in this one region. This, so this was symmetric walking, both limbs going at 1.0 meters per second. And they, they kind of clustered in this region. We go, great, that's perfect. And then we looked at this asymmetric walking with the 0.25 difference. And we go, huh, these, these people resided in a different region. This is, this is pretty good. And then we decided to push our luck. And we said, well, where's this other kind of 0.5 individuals? Where are they going to reside? And lo and behold, they resided in a different region. We got really excited because, you know, not only could we identify a healthy region of, of gate biomechanics, but we could also figure out the subtleties between, you know, if you have a 0.25 or 0.5 difference. And so this kind of gave us uh, impetus to think, well, maybe you can start to not only delineate between healthy and pathological gait, but different types of pathological gait. So, you know, maybe people with a hamstring injury reside in one region, people with ACL another, and people with patellofemoral pain another. So we got really excited by these findings. Um, And again, just kind of summarizing this work that it was great. Um, we can have a healthy region and then also we could have the subtleties of the different perturbations. Would you, uh, given that, uh, how the nature of an injury will actually affect, for example, the range of motion and the mechanics in that way, uh, how agnostic would you be on, the, for example, specific injury affecting a certain, having a certain like archetype of gait? Would it be pretty much like you would expect them to manifest in different ways or you would expect them to manifest in different ways, but it might not be detectable? Yeah, I think that is, that's a great question. And we do think that they're going to start to manifest in different ways. And we have a, a little bit of idea that that's, that's possible. But I do think that, you know, sometimes we look at this measure. So we have about three or four measures that we're looking at. And we do think that in some respects, we do need a collection of measurements. So, you know, this AR modeling is going to be great to identify that there is a problem. And then we're going to use some of our pond care plots to add to it to say, okay, not only are you pathological, but if you have differences in your pond care plots as well, then you're going to also add to it and say, we can better specify. So we don't, you know, I think each one of these is going to be great in actually identifying, you know, healthy and pathological, but to, to truly get the subtleties of the different movement patterns, I think you're going to need a couple of these metrics in, in conjunction and eventually getting back to that, um, the algorithm. So yeah. Uh, one other question that I had was, um, were these different regions, were they, did patients who fell within those regions, is that because the, their location sort of typified their their all their gait, all their strides, or is it that, uh, for example, that they um, were sort of that they had like their their twenty five percent or fifty percent most anomalous strides looked more like this. Um, uh, so let me just show you. yeah, because fortunately this was just on the healthy individuals thus mm-hmm. far, but um, yeah, no, I, I think that they were you know everybody kind of was represented that way. So sorry, ask her. Maybe I'm not understanding. Oh. Oh yeah, sorry. Um, I was. I guess what what I was wondering was, um, when you are changing the uh the symmetry of the walking and you see them starting to fall into different places, um, mm-hmm. is the idea that um all each of their strides looks odd compared to the um you know the other archetypes, or is it that um, for example, like fifty percent of them look odd and then they all look more of the same for the rest of them, sort of like um you know how like even um. Even unhealthy people, 
look healthy with regard to certain dimensions some of the time. It's just like when things go really bad. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I guess, is it more like a central <laughs> thing, tendency, or more like their extreme distribution thing? Yeah, no, I I think when we start to do these perturbations, we, we do see that um, all their strides are really disruptive and it just magnifies the, the anomalies that they have in their gait. So if we think about like when both are, you're doing symmetric walking, you, you might pick up little subtleties in their, their gait parameters, but as we kind of put in the 0.25 and the 0.25 mag, um, perturbations, there are differences between the different um, classes of individuals. It really does kind of manifest very differently and very apparently. So, um, yeah, so I, I think the, you know, applying these perturbations just magnifies the subtleties and the patterns that we would see during their symmetric walking. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, cool. I, I guess just because I was imagining it could go one of two ways. One, the body adapts correct, like rapidly, and it just sort of goes with the, I guess, the two side flow. And the mm -hmm. other would be essentially that you can see the body or the gait rebelling against it while trying to sort of essentially try to, uh, do a balancing act between what the more natural gait is and what the unnatural gait is? Yeah, so no, these are great questions. Some of them are actually going to lead to some of the, the future slides. But um, yeah, what we notice is that, like you said, different people adapt differently. So healthy controls, this is more disruptive. But we have seen that over, um, and then in individuals with certain pathological conditions, this is more stabilizing. And what's been interesting is we can actually track their changes, you know, kind of looking, we we've recently done this where we kind of looked at the repeated measures, looked at over time, we've had them do this asymmetric walking for 10, 15 minutes. And it's been interesting to see almost this kind of exponential decay to stabilizing regions. So uh, it has been interesting to see how people adapt to this. So healthy individuals, this is really destabilizing. They're going to have disruptive gait for the most part, but we have seen individual pathological conditions. It actually is somewhat renormalizing. So it's pretty cool how you respond to it. And again, that is reflective of your system and, and what's going on in there. So yeah, no, these are, these are great questions. They're, like I said, they're going to be leading into some future, future slides. Um, so continue on with this. We go, okay, well, it's great that we looked at the ground reaction force peaks, um, but we also have the loading rate, right? So a loading rate, not only we want to generate force, but how quickly can you generate force? So again, in this healthy controls only so far, because we couldn't get ACL individuals in there, we had people walk at symmetrically at 0.751 and 1.5. And what we found was that there was somewhat of a linear relationship between these two, um, the, these two metrics. And so it's something that we haven't really seen before. And so it was great to see that, you know, as you, um, we like this, that this linear relationship held across different speeds, because, you know, we didn't want to say your ratio needs to be this for 0.75 and this for one. We saw that these linear relationships held across different walking speeds. And so then we said, we took our healthy controls and we said, let's apply this perturbation. We applied the 0.5 perturbation. And what we started to see is that they all actually resided outside of this region, or for the most part, resided outside of this region, right? So for us, it kind of was a supportive of this metric in that, you know, if you're healthy, you're going to have this linear relationship between your peak force and your loading rate. But if you're exhibiting some kind of abnormal neuromuscular deficiencies or um, physical impairments, you're going to out reside outside of this region. So that was a really exciting finding for us and it validated, you know, supported this work. And so we wanted to figure out, okay, great, we have this linear relationship, but what does this metric really tell us about anything? And, and what we think it's looking at is motor control. So motor control is a regulation of movement. And so you need force and, and, and the rate of force to, to regulate movement. So we think this is a nice motor control metric. Um, again, the healthy individuals, it further supported and validated that this 
asymmetric walking was a physical perturbation and a physical impairment um, in at least healthy individuals. And then we thought about, well, if we kind of expand on this work as we get more populations in here, if we get PFP or, or things of that nature, can we kind of make it similar to the body mass index where we start to figure out as you strike away from this, you know, are you going to be at greater or more risk? You know, if we think about return to sport metrics, if you're only a little bit out, does it mean that you can return to sport, but you can't do contact injuries? But if you're further out, you go, no, you can't go back to sport. You need to get more rehabilitation. So that's kind of our future goal of this. So that was really exciting. But then what was even more exciting is said, well, we've only been doing this in healthy individuals. Um, And so we're like, well, that's great. It works in healthy, but how does it work in ACL individuals? So we were fortunate to work with our collaborators, Dr. Noren, and we got some ACL people running. And these are individuals who had um, reconstruction surgery about six months prior, and they'd all been returned back to sport, right? So they all been told that they are ready to go back to, to sport. And we noticed that we looked at the peak force versus loading rate, again, in running. We saw that there was a strong correlation between those. Um, we looked at the non-reconstructed limb. We saw that the correlation was still there. But however, when we looked at this ACL reconstructed, we found that these people were not exhibiting this linear diagnostic. So um, again, when we thought back to what we saw previously in the, um, the healthy controls, is that individuals who have this, um, healthy individuals have this linear relationship. And then when we kind of disrupt and have a physical impairment, this kind of falls apart, which was great. And I always feel bad saying it's great because these people are injured. So I'm not happy that they're injured, uh, but I am happy that these metrics are, are picking up these differences. Your leg is quantifiably messed up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It really is. So, and I think, you know, and it's one of these things, like you said, these people were all cleared to return to sport. And then very quickly, we were able to say, no, you're not. I mean, this is based off of 10 seconds worth of running data. So we think, you know, the challenge is if you go to a doctor's office, they're not going to have this instrumented treadmill in their office to measure some of these metrics. So, you know, one of the things we're trying to figure out is, hey, we have these quantifiable metrics, like you're saying, can we figure out ways to put them in foot sensors and other ways to quickly measure these things? So I think this was just the the summary of that. But like I said, um, despite extensive rehabilitations, these injuries persist. So Again, we've done a lot of stealing. If you've noticed, we've looked at the kind of linear relationships, we use autoaggressive modeling. Um, and so we wanted to carry on this theme of, of developing these, taking metrics that have been used in, in other areas and applying them to us. So a lot of people use these Poincaré plots and I'm sure I'm pronouncing them wrong, I'm not French. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll do with <laughs> what we have. But um, what they do a lot in heart rate is they look at this beat to beat interval dynamics. And what's great about these dynamics is um, you know, in healthy individuals, there's this kind of really tight oval pattern um, in healthy individuals. So you take your heartbeat, current one versus the other one, and they're going to have this kind of oval pattern. However, what we started to notice is that, or they started to notice, is that when you have um, uh, a heart ailment, that this pattern falls apart. And what we like about these metrics is I always call them the eye test. And the, I, what I like about this is that somebody who doesn't know anything, I don't know anything about heart rate dynamics, I can very quickly look at these patterns and say, there's something wrong here. And so that was the kind of the biggest impetus for using these. And one of the things we also liked about this is we have, um, we want our metrics to have some meaning. So the previous one talked about motor control. Um, and so what we want to see was, well, if we use this heart rate dynamics and these punk hair plots, what are they going to do? And so we have SD1 and SD2 and they represent the um, kind of the variance and variability along the short and long axis. 
And so we know that SD1 was kind of telling us it was an issue in the short-term variability and SD2 was saying there there's an issue in the long-term variability. And what this translated to for us is the fact that we're going to start developing some rehabilitation protocols. We want to say, if we have these, see these adaptive changes, are they only storing these short-term or are they storing these long-term? So that was kind of where we came up with this. So we use these. And again, fortunately enough, we had finally got some ACL people in the, the lab. And we saw that if we put, um, we did this puncture plots on these individuals. And instead of using heart rate, we used stride time. And we saw that even in the non-reconstructed limb that's often affected, you can see that it had more of that oval pattern. However, when we looked at the reconstructed limb, very quickly, we knew that there was something wrong with these individuals' gait um, and did not pass the eye test. So it, it was really great to see. Again, these metrics are sensitive, not that this person was injured. And what was concerning about this is this is during normal walking. And this person, I think, was about two or three years out from ACL uh, reconstruction and rehabilitation. So these, these patterns actually persist for a while. Yeah, I really like this work, and especially um, going back to the previous slide where you talked about how you're using uh, metrics that were established for heart rate variability, and that how that inspired your own work. I think, uh, well, you know, we we've hung out at EMBC before, and I think that like uh, this is one of the things that I think early career data scientists can really get a handle on. Um, where I, I think everyone should do this, where even if a piece of work does not directly apply to what you're doing, like it doesn't need to be the exact same application, the exact same models to apply. To what you're doing, you can get inspiration from anywhere, and I think that, um, like, I, I've gotten inspiration from um, uh, a lot of uh, biomechanical, some physical work, uh, some work on the, uh, astrophysics and identifying uh, new like exoplanets. And I just, I didn't use their methods, and clearly, I wasn't even using their uh, their the same type of data. But still, the actual motivation and the dynamic that I was trying to capture it wasn't hard, too hard to connect the dots. Like, oh yeah, I can do this from my current method, capture this new dynamic, have a new metric. And so I, re I really appreciate you doing that. And I, as you just said, you know, uh, at EMBC where we uh, both, I guess, used to uh, attend um, that, um, you know, just one of the main values of going to those uh, presentations is you just go, you get ideas, you write them down and you bring them back and just see what you can do. And I, I wish more data scientists would uh, be open-minded enough to um, to do that. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. That and like you said, it's a purpose of going to those conferences and really gaining new ideas. So no, that that was that was that's great. And so yeah, so that was kind of the first study. Um, so that's what we did is we just started to figure out can we define new regions and new regimes of of healthy motor control so that now when we start to do our rehabilitation protocols, we can start to figure out quantify whether or not we're actually getting people back to a healthy level. So. Um, our second study, so you'll recognize the laboratory. Uh, this is our, our laboratory. But our second goal was to implement novel rehabilitation protocols. Um, and so what we wanted to do is, is we recognize that in individuals who have ACL injury, we noticed, and even based on a previous slide, that there's gait asymmetries. So one limb is doing one thing and one limb is doing another. Um, and so that's a problem. And, and again, because of those imbalances, it leads to altered knee loading and knee osteoarthritis. So we started to figure out, well, how can we um, renormalize these patterns? And we, again, we, we pulled from people who've done work in stroke. And they've shown that if you do this asymmetric walking protocol, that they can actually restore uh, healthy stride time dynamics, even in the short term, um, in response to having one leg going one speed and one going another. And so we do recognize that, oh yeah, Oh, sorry. 
Oh, no, I was just going to say, I can tell you why this uh, why this subject got injured. Uh, your postdoc forgot to take the box off the head. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, they, they can't see. <laughs> Is it, yeah, that was like, that was only for the coordination test. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah, we, we all make mistakes as, as postdocs. Sometimes we forget to, you know, attach the uh, recording device or to hit record. Sometimes you just leave a box on the subject's head and um, they're uncoordinated. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and again, yeah. it's a visual thing, right? We, you yeah. know, we detect it visually. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that, that was a, it was, it was great. But the, the stroke, we recognize that the individuals with stroke don't have the same, um, you know, people with stroke and people with ACL injuries are not the same population. They, they don't have the same injury, but we like the idea that we could renormalize gait. Um, so that's what we sought out to do. So we did this investigation. We have this asymmetric walking protocol and you can see we have, a series of symmetric walking. And then we do our asymmetric where we kind of do a 0.25 difference for about 10 minutes. And then we have them walk symmetric pattern just as a washout period. And then we, we kind of go back and forth. So this is for us to see, is this even effective in this population? So that was really the, the rationale for this. So we go back to our AR triangles and we said, okay, we've defined our healthy region of dynamics. And then, okay, well, let's see what we have with this reconstructed individuals, ACL individuals. And again, fortunately for us, terribly for them, we found out that these people, even during symmetric walking, did not reside in this healthy range. So we're going, okay. Again, this is a very sensitive metric. It's picking up these subtle differences, um, but okay. But then we said, well, why don't we have them do our asymmetric walking protocol and see what happens? And I wouldn't be showing this slide if it wasn't good. But what ended up happening is we actually were able to kind of push these people into this healthy region. Um, so that was really exciting because it allowed us to say that asymmetric walking does restore healthy ground reaction force peak dynamics in these individuals. So that was a really big finding for us. And, you know, I was like, okay, this is good for the lab. We, we've kind of been struggling to get the lab set up and to get these people through here. And we were really excited to see that even in the short term, we were able to kind of move these people with this asymmetric walking into this healthy region. This was huge. Yeah. Kristen, I actually just realized uh, um, silly. Uh, oversight on my part as uh, looking at the AR, um, the, the AR regions and basically just realized like, okay, um, you're actually saying that for the healthy region, you're requiring that your uh, second AR coefficient must be positive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, obviously. And um, that the first AR coefficient can be between about one and negative one. So that one is allowed to oscillate between negative and positive or, or is it right around zero? Um, yeah, I, I was just wondering, can can you actually give us a quick physiological description of what that uh, that upper triangle is meant to say? Yeah, so, yeah, because you're right. I think on future slides, we talk about how specifically even in that lower region, you're really getting into the oscillatory dynamics. So you're, you're seeing that there's kind of some underlying dynamics in this. But what we recognize in some of these regions is that... Um, they're non. They're in the non-oscillatory region, so that's one of the first things. So th there is some kind of there's a pattern to it, but you're not seeing large deviations in this. Um, but we notice as you get towards maybe to the right of that circle, you're seeing that people are. I'm trying to think of in in our biomechanics standpoint, a more of a reserved conservative gait. So you're not seeing great large oscillations or odd large changes in their peak force. Peak peak forces, not force. Um, so you're not seeing these large um, oscillations in their dynamics. And so they're kind of um, having more of a stiffer gait. 
And so this idea of as they're walking, you're not going to see these large deviations in their peak ground reaction force patterns. However, if we saw, if you're getting towards the edge of the triangle and you get towards that kind of outer region, um, you're still in the stable re range, you're still in the oscillate. But what we started to recognize is that we saw that people's peak ground reaction forces, there was a, a lot of differences if we think about, we have a first peak and a second peak. And what we started to figure out was that the magnitude between those was a little bit larger. And so again, um, it was less of a stiffer gait, but they were almost like struggling to kind of keep stabilized. So as they were getting towards that kind of outer band, we started to see that they were becoming a little bit more unstable. So we see that again, moving towards kind of that zero range, you were getting to more of a stiffer protocol, a stiffer gait pattern, and they were kind of minimize their, um, they were trying to minimize the dynamics or oscillatory patterns in their data. And however, as they got to the outer region, you started to realize that they really couldn't control these deviations. So that was more from a biomechanics standpoint. We had a kind of a stiffer gait, and then you were kind of saying these people are teetering on the brink of um, instability. They're going to completely go unstable. Yeah, cool. Thanks. That's really helpful. Okay. Cool. <laughs> no, hopefully. Um, so then the the next thing is we go, okay, well, let's kind of confirm whether or not we have our, our loading rate peak force versus loading rate dynamics. And again, we had people go at the symmetric walking. And so the symmetric walking was 0.75, 1, 1.5. And then we wanted to figure out where our ACL individuals resided based on this 0.25 meters per second difference. And what they ended up is they actually, again, fell back into this region. So we were really excited because once again, it was telling us that we could actually restore healthy gait in these individuals. So again, um, asymmetric walking restores healthy motor control in close ACL individuals. And I'm sure this is a bold claim, uh, but we're going to make it and, and move on. But um, that, that was a really exciting thing. So again, we're continuing to show that this work is effective in getting people to exhibit more of their healthy dynamics. And then um, again, looking at our gait intervention, looking at our upon care plots, we get, okay, well, we remember that if we looked at symmetric walking, these individuals had their, um, they had, you know, the reconstructed limb was really having this splatter pattern. Um, so we could really quickly see that specifically because it was going perpendicular to this line of identity, that they were exhibiting kind of this really disruptive short-term dynamics, right? And so what we found is when they did the asymmetric walking is once again, we were able to kind of show that these people were starting to get back to this more oval pattern, which we know is um, really more associated with healthy dynamics. Um, and we started to figure out that again, while it's not you know perfectly oval, like it was in this heart rate variability, we were starting to see that they were actually getting into the more long-term dynamics of this individual. So they were starting to store these patterns in the more long-term. So that was a big exciting thing for this is that our gait intervention was effective and actually renormalizing their gait patterns, again, their stride time patterns. So um, this was kind of, again, really cool. So, uh, and what we liked about this is it really related back to this overriding um, muscle inhibition. So we talk about that they're not able to activate their muscles in the right patterns for either some reason. So it, it's clear that they have the ability to do so, but for some reason, they're not able to do it when they're doing the symmetric walking. So something about this asymmetric walking overrides this inhib inhibitory muscle activation dynamics to get them back to this normal range. So that was kind of, um, you know, months and years of work whittled down, like you said, into three slides about how we can start to show that this novel gait intervention was really effective in restoring healthy gait dynamics in individuals. So the final thing is, is where we kind of got derailed. So we were looking at so much of the neuromuscular, you know, physical impairments. Um, 
But then some work came about where we had to do some cognitive work. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about this as being a linear kind of thing where we were kind of saying, okay, we had the healthy controls and we had the ACLs and, and then we got to this cognitive parent, but it really wasn't the case. And again, like I said, we were struggling to get these pathological populations um, and people, as much as, you know, we were showing that this asymmetric walking perturbation, even in healthies was disruptive. Um, the, the challenge was the fact that people still want to say, well, can you prove it in these pathological conditions? So we had to get creative and we had to borrow data sets from other sources. And one of the data sets that we had was working on individuals who had cognitive impairments such as Huntington's disease, Parkinson's, ALS. And so identifying, again, we were trying to figure out what does this, um, are our metrics sense enough to not only delineate between physical impairment, but also cognitive? So we go back to our trusty slide, which, you know, we only have about three slides, right? So we go back to our um, trusty slide and we were able to show that, okay, we know where people reside when they're healthy. We know when they reside when they have the physical impairments, but where do they reside with their cognitive? And again, it was, it was beautiful. Again, not that they have these motor control issues, but the fact that these individuals actually resided in a different region of the, this triangle, or not the triangle, but on this plot. So again, it was showing us that, you know, this metric was one sensitive to denote these changes, but it also sensitive enough to say that, you know, when you're having some physical impairment, you're going to be in one region and cognitive impairment, you're going to be in another. Is there anything meaningful to the fact that they appear to all fall with the one exception below that line? Yeah. So what we recognize is we think about, you know, part of it is the fact that they're not generating as much force. Um, mm -hmm. And then the loading rate, again, it's kind of getting into this neuromuscular inhibition. So um, this population, I believe, is individual with Parkinson's. And so we think that it's an overarching thing of these are probably not only that they're older individuals, but they just aren't able to kind of generate the force and generate the force at the right rate. So if you think about it, a lot of these individuals have freezing gait and things of that nature. So we're, we're recognizing that that's most likely the contributing force um, aspect to this. So they don't even have the, the muscle strength to do this, but they really can't generate that force quickly at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, oh, yeah, that's just a cool. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I feel bad. I don't want to cut you off. Um, so then we go back to our AR triangle. And again, what we'll see is one of the first things I'm sure someone noted, well, wasn't your healthy region in a different region before? And it was, but it was because we were looking at peak ground reaction force, and now we we're looking at stride time. So it was kind of a, a different measure that we were looking at. And so we did this and we have our healthy controls were in one region. We had our physically impaired asymmetric walking. Again, they're kind of pushing out to this kind of um, the edge of the triangle. However, when we started to get to the cognitive impairment, these individuals actually had Huntington's disease. We started to realize that they moved into that oscillatory region. And it kind of makes sense when you think about people with Huntington's disease and the fact that the cognitive impairment that they have is going to disrupt them and actually you see people that have the shaking and movement patterns, it really was manifesting in their stride time that there was this kind of disordered oscillatory dynamics to their gait patterns that we're, we're picking up. So we recognize once again that their physical impairment and cognitive impairment really manifested differently in these individuals and moved you to a different region. So we got greedy and we said, okay, we're able to do all this stuff with this physical and cognitive impairment. We can differentiate between these two populations but can we differentiate between individuals with different types of cognitive impairment? And so that's what we did here is we had the region of healthy controls. And then we got, took some of the cognitive impairment individuals that we had um, and they're condition one, so they're in the gray. And then we had individuals with cognitive impairment too, they're in the pink. Um, and what we're able to show 
is that they did reside in different regions. And so we took the AR coefficients and we also um, added in our mean stride time as another measure. And we got this nice 3D image. Um, but what was exciting for us is that we were able to kind of show that these people were really residing in different um, regions completely. So we can not only say, okay, you guys are different than the healthy controls, but your gait patterns are being able to sensitive enough that we can differentiate between those with Huntington's and those with ALS based on these measures. So it was really, really exciting um, for us to see this. Um, and so this was kind of where we're at right now. So a lot of our work is not only doing kind of the ACL work, but we're also getting into some of this cognitive and figuring out, can we use some of our gait measures to delineate between them as well? So um, this is kind of the, the next steps and, and where we want to go. So again, we didn't talk about our double integrals, but we will get back into OpenSim. And our idea for a lot of this is, can we say, not only can we identify that there's differences, but can we associate um, certain muscle dynamics or certain differences based on where you are in these triangles or in that motor control plot? And then finally, can we also do some different mapping, like you said, to um, this AR triangle? So can we associate certain regions with this with either cognitive and physical impairment? So that's really where we're at right now. We're really excited about where we are, but it's a long way from where we started and, and not exactly where we thought we'd be, but we're, we're excited to be here. So, um, you know, I want to thank my collaborators, Dr. Brian Norn at the University of Kentucky for a lot of the data, or not a lot of the data, the running data. Um, I also want to thank my grad students, uh, Hilia and Yanni. Um, they're really great and they've been able to collect a lot of this data, do a ton of this analysis. And then we have a strong workforce of undergraduate students who are, are doing a lot of the, the grunt work. So we appreciate this and, and a lot of our we also appreciate our funding sources, which include the Office of Naval Research, uh, General Dynamics, and the National Institute for Undersea Vehicles. So that's our, that's it. So thank you for listening <laughs> for all that. Cool. So yeah, I just wanted to start off again um, to reiterate that earlier point about, you know, being inspired and taking metrics and inspiration from other work. And I think that's, um, it seems to be something that's pretty common in the biomedical engineer, engineering community. Um, and sometimes I feel as if, you know, not everyone in statistics or data science is taking full advantage of that, where they're a little bit more um, regimented in what they believe actually can apply to them. Um, but yeah, I was, I was glad to see that. Are you, um, are there any other examples that you've had where you've sort of just sort of cherry picked uh, metrics or anything interesting that seemed to be useful? I, you know, no, I, that's a great point. One, yeah, because I think we do this a lot of the biomedical engineering because I think we're in a somewhat younger engineering field. So I, I think, you know, we, we've gotten, we're fortunate to see that, you know, a lot of these other fields have done the hard work for us. So we can say, okay, you, you all figure this out. Let, let's do this. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think those are the, the biggest examples, but I, I, we're always trying to do this because, you know, I, I think one of the things that you, you know, you talk about, we want to, everyone wants to move the field forward, right? You want to do something that's going to be new. And, and I think the way to do that a lot of times is really to kind of take a new approach to this. So, you know, you don't want to just continue to say, oh, okay, we're always going to continue to measure the loading rate and, and see who, which one is higher. We really want to take a new approach to this. I, I guess it's more part of me that I get tired of reading the same paper over and over again. You know, so I, I think that's where it comes about. But no, we're, all, we're always looking for new ideas. Um, you know, and that's what I said, it's been great is to pull from some of the statistics field. Like I said, I'm a biomedical engineer by trade. I'm not a statistician. Um, but it's been great to, you know, we try to pull in a lot of the work that you guys have been doing. So. Um, and I think that's because of my background. My mother, you know, is a statistician. Um, 
So I think that's where where it's all come from. So yeah, we're we're always looking, and that's why we go to conferences. Um, like AI, the joint statistical meeting is to gain a lot more information. So when we get back to these in person, maybe we can we can steal some more ideas. Yeah, definitely. I would actually say that I think the engineering profession and sort of uh, engineer research they are pretty darn good about bringing statistics into the mix. It's just I think a lot of statisticians somehow believe that um, statistics is like not available to the other technical fields as if like the books are locked or something like that, um, where you just, we, we just can't access them. And I, I think it is worth noting that not only do they, um, I mean, these days, not only are engineers very proficient at applying uh, statistics, especially because most of our work usually has to deal with some type of stochastic process or another, but you know, if you look at a lot of the best for a lot of, um, I wouldn't say best, cause obviously that's highly subjective, but you know, if you look at a lot of the, uh, groundbreaking and cutting edge, you know, like Bayesian machine learning work, it's coming out of engineering departments. Um, and a lot of uh, really good probabilistic machine learning work, you know, it's biomedical engineers are, are doing it because the fact is, you know, um, there, there was a time period where if you were doing some like mechanical engineering, there were these sort of heavily mathematical deductive, um, I just say lower variance mm-hmm. phenomena that we had to study. And therefore, things like probability and statistics, maybe it didn't it might not have mattered as much as opposed to like the raw physics of the gear grinding or the, you know, the rock hitting you on the head or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But now we are dealing with noisy processes and, um, you know, engineering steps up its game because there's noise in this, you know, there's no way that you could look at someone's gate and say, ah, here's the like perfect physical system that produces this. Like, no, you're gonna have a noise process in that. Um, a hundred percent. Yeah, there's so many noisy processes. And I think also the addition of the fact that we can apply these techniques because I think technology has gotten better. So I know, like you said, in your work, you're able to collect data over days and times. And, say, you know, and so I think that's the nice thing is that the ability to collect a lot of this data, we've gotten more sophisticated in our tools that we're using. So now we can start to get the right set of data that we can apply a lot of the techniques that maybe we couldn't before. So I think that's been big because even doing a time series of this, if you go back to like what Moybridge and, and biomechanics, you know, all the stuff that we collect with the Vicon motion capture system and we get the ground reaction force and the, the knee angle stuff pretty instantaneously, um, they had to do by hand and digitize by hand. So I think, you know, it was a lot harder. They were like, we're going to only analyze this one stride. We're not going to worry about one 10 minutes of data uh, to analyze. So I think that that's also a, a big part of this is just being able to collect these large data sets now. Yeah, it it really is impressive. Um, And also it's, uh, I think that a lot of the, some of the scientific fields that aren't allowing you to collect as much of a big enough data set, um, they're limiting themselves because one, there are fewer hypotheses that you can test. Um, And I I do hit that one strong because I think that people should be aiming towards hypothesis driven scientific inquiry. I, I don't like the idea, especially specifically within data science. I think it's very dangerous for us to just be doing data-driven data science, because that's, um, it's a little bit yeah. inbred. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think that the uh, the opening up of these wearables and things like that, um, I guess sort of a wearable, what you have, it's uh, like, like the little, the dots are the wearables, but then of course you have all this other technology on top of that. But yeah, no, um, the amount that you can observe and test and the cool sort of machine learning analytical bits, which is obviously what we enjoy Mm-hmm. probably the most like that, that that's the most fun engaging bit um 
that um, you know it, it does allow you to try and test out a lot more of those types of uh, techniques. No, a hundred percent. And yeah, you, you're right about the wearables. We, you know, I think the the biggest thing about the wearables is you know our our system right now is not something that can be applied to the the clinic. However, you know, the metrics we can, can be collected in some of these wearables. So if we put in foot pressure sensors, they can collect those ground reaction for us, the loading rate, the stride time. So, um, you know, we have been testing out experimentally, but yeah, the, the next step is really getting into these wearables. And, and that's what we like about them is it's something that we always want to be able to put into the clinic. And I think my um, collaboration with Dr. Brian Noren, who is a physical therapist, you know, he would always say with us, you know, because I, I think you're right. We would love to get into like, oh, we found this cool metric and we're, we're, we're delineating these things. And he, he'd always ask us, well, how are we going to apply this to the clinic? You know, what is the physiological under underpinning of this? What does this mean physiologically? So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, you're right. I think, um, you know, it's not just collecting data and analyzing for analyzing sake, but kind of doing it with a purpose. And so I think that's been great to work with other collaborators that kind of forced us to say, you know, just don't throw everything in there and, and get a result, but make it something meaningful. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, just playing off that last point that um, when you look at things like biomechanics, where it is one of those fields where there is, there's obviously some, there are some hard physical realities to it. Um, you know, there's a maximal, um, you know, bend to the knee. There's a maximal force that a human body can exert. There's an even, there's a personalized maximal human force when you, you know, actually look at what the actual individual's body um, composition is. And so, to me, I think that this is a very interesting area where it is it is very strongly both data science and good like bread and butter physical engineering because you are taking all those principles. Um, did you have to learn a lot? Um, how how much like learning did you have to do on the uh, on your sort of domain knowledge to get up to speed? Yeah, that has been the the biggest part is, is getting up to speed and learning all these things. So, you know, like I said, we're this is not my training. So we've had had to work with individuals um, like Heather Bush, at who was at the University of Kentucky. I know she's moved, but we have worked with a lot of individuals who have been in, in the statistics arena to kind of help us get an understanding of of these tools and these measures and, and how they can be most appropriately um, applied. And so, I, I you know, I still think we're, we're still in that learning phase. You know, I think you know, the AR modeling, for example, we're really excited about that. But even like you're saying with the questions, is getting a better physiological understanding of what, what this is really telling us. Um, you know, so yeah, we, we, you know, that's one of these things where, you know, again, you know, naively we go, oh, we're going to take the year and learn this technique, but we're always going to be learning new and new, newer and newer techniques and gaining a better understanding of them. Yeah. How long, if, if someone were interested in uh, learning more about the sort of biomechanics as in the actual physiology elements to it, how long would it take them and sort of where, how, what would the path be? So say you get an undergrad or an MSc student just dropped in your lap. Um, yeah. how, how would you get them up to speed on that so that they're at least functional in some way? Yeah, no, it, it's interesting because I, you, you, you kind of touch on a nerve, <laughs> no. but one of the things is, you know, we are biomedical engineers doing biomechanists and a lot of that work is right out of kinesiology. Um, and so our lab is a shared lab with the kinesiology department. We have a joint, I have a joint appointment in there. Um, but I think, you know, as a biomedical engineer, if you're coming in from an engineering background, I think you do need to take a little bit more um, physiology, you know, to take some of those classes that are anatomy and physiology, they're going to get you up to speed on, on these understandings. 
Um, so that's why I would kind of say from our standpoint, if biomedical engineers are typically lacking on the anatomy and physiological aspect of this, I would say that if you're coming in from kinesiology, a lot of this is you're going to want to take more uh, dynamics courses um, just to understand how we, we move in space. Because, you know, we're using, you know, a lot of the principles that we're using are, are taken again from physics. You know, you talk about the ground reaction force as just equal and opposite reactions, right? And, and force equals mass times acceleration. That's all we're using. So a lot of these things are taken from these fields. So I think things like physics and dynamics are, are good if you're not coming in, if you're coming in from more of a kinesiology background. And if you're coming in from a biomedical engineering background, I would say you would need to take more anatomy and physiology to really, like you said, apply a lot of these concepts to the human body. Have you ever um, sort of seen physiologically impossible results? As in, you looked at the data, you looked at some analysis, and you, you use the fact that something was physiologically impossible to deduce that either a miscalculation had occurred or that there's a measurement error or something like that? Yeah, I mean, you do see that. And so, you know, simply, and like you said, in, in identifying outliers, you know, it, you know, some of the data, the force first loading rate data, you know, someone's generating 0.5 new, you know, times their body weight while they're walking. And you're like, you can't produce less than your body weight during walking. So you're right. You, you need to have a, you need to start looking at the data. And I think that's one of the big things that we, we've um, gotten out of. And I really like what our students are doing because you know, plotting the data gives us a, is really valuable to give us some physiological knowledge because you're right. I think a lot of times we could take the data and just plot it and, and do a, a lot of crazy things. But if you understand that when you're walking, you can't produce less force in your body weight, it starts to kind of bound what your, your knowledge is. Um, so yeah, that's a lot of times we do see this. So we've gotten our students into looking at the data, plotting the data. I think people don't plot the data enough. That's kind of my biggest thing. So I think if you start to plot the data, you kind of see there's a, there's some problems there. And, and thinking about physiologically just phenomenons, not so much. And so this is a terrible, you know, it's not what we love to see, but we fortunately, we've never had anybody tear their ACL while they're on the machine. But I think if they do, we'd see some very interesting um, breakdowns in physics that would occur. So we're not wishing that on anybody. We don't want them to tear an ACL. I'm, I, I'm not saying that we want it. I'm just saying that it would be of extreme scientific value and very helpful to, you know, as, a, as a data point or two, you know, and yeah. Well, and, and my students know, I, I'd say, like I say, we go, we don't want anybody to tear their ACL on this machine. But if they do, you better be recording. Yeah. So, <laughs> so no, it, it, it's, yeah. So yeah, we, we haven't seen something, but like you said, if we do see some physiological stuff right now, it's it's likely just from measurement errors of um, the, the instruments we're using. Yeah. Um, I know last time the sort of the the lost recording in back in the archives, um, the, the archives that uh, don't exist in the digital world, um, which is the real world. Um, mm -hmm. But um, we talked a little bit about um, sort of bringing people like into the fold as far as like interesting them, uh, making your work sort of, I guess, your research either attractive from like an economic standpoint or something that would attract uh, research bucks. Um, do you think that sort of the sports injury versus um, the cognitive decline um, angle? It seems to me that like given our population that the cognitive decline um, Oh, just to put it this way, in a nation where we have such high uh, obesity rates um, and an aging population, it seems that uh, cognitive decline might be more of a uh, customer base than sports injury. However, I, at the same time, people who do have sports injuries are dedicated and they have like a high desire to get back into the game. So I was just wondering 
was the cognitive decline thing was that was that a pivot to sort of like increase your um customer base so to say yeah (laughs) you know yeah it really was i mean that's the work that we've gotten funded for um so you know it's it's not that we haven't had fun forever but that's been one of the like you said it's it's because of the changing dynamics of the population there is kind of an an increased area and interest in that um and recognizing that you know our physical you know, is reflective of our cognitive. It's been a, a great thing. So yeah, that has been more of an important customer-based, a need-based um, approach. Uh, but yeah, I think my heart is always also going to be in sports. So we also see that, you know, we really do feel like the, there's a good um, place for this in sports as well. So, you know, if any sports teams are out there, I'm definitely, hey, we'd love to collaborate and work with you as well. But um, but yeah, so yeah, the cognitive is definitely a need-based um, situation. and you know, we're, we're, we're happy we've gotten into it. Like I said, the paper came first and then the work became second. So, um, it wasn't just when we were like, we need to get in this area, but, uh, yeah, it, it worked out. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one other issue, and this is a bit more of my just general scientific curiosity is, um, you know, I'm interested in sort of like study of one type things where essentially, um, which could include something as simple as people experimenting on themselves or things like, uh, dietary and exercising habits. Um, and, um, which I know on one side gets sort of derided as anecdote. On the other side, it's effectively personalized experimentation, which I would say is probably the most valid thing that you might have, um, given that you're usually only trying to optimize yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was wondering about sort of experiment of one type work for this, where effectively when you have an injured athlete and you're trying to optimize a recovery regime, um, it's a little bit of a one-shot process um where you only have this one person at the time and um well yes you could say on average these regimes do better or the, these regimes do worse across a cohort um how much uh, I, this is a mushy question yeah. but basically what, what are your thoughts on those types of things um yeah i mean i think you're right and you know personalized modeling is really kind of the the biggest thing we're going to want to do um so, yeah, I think that that's definitely one of the goals of ours because we would love to, like you said, have an athlete come in and get them up to where they need to be. I don't think we're, we're not personally there yet, but we we have started to look into that. I think, you know, that's a changing idea with this the, the field. You know, I think a lot of times our field wants to do these big cohort studies and that's what they like to see. Um, but like you said, there is kind of this importance in being able to say a lot of this needs to be tailored to the individual. And that's that's kind of the where they're going. So I think that transition is coming. We're not there yet, um, but we we do, like I said, we have collected some data on some interesting individuals that we do think we can put out kind of papers on where they have some kind of very unique, um, you know, unique ailments, so to speak. But yeah, I, I don't think our field, I can't speak for everyone, but I don't think our field is there yet, but I definitely think that that's where we're heading, we're, we're going, and that's really important, yeah. Yeah, that is an interesting thing um, when you talk about unique ailments, because um as you might know from some of the, like the oncology research, you know, there are some very weird uh, genetic um, activities out there and both from uh, the perspective of patients and the uh, heterogeneity of, you know, the cancer tumors. And um, I very much respect the fact that um, in a lot of oncology work, they actually do have a publication space for these sort of new in of one discoveries. And um, they can be things like, um, like uh, a typical one might be when an especially young person gets a 
uh, some type of like uh, leukemia that's only usually exhibited in people 70 and older. And then the question becomes like, oh, well, was there like some like consanguineous aspect of this that has vastly upped their, uh, their risk and things like that? And there's a place in the research for that and loss of discovery. And um, I'm uh, heartened to hear that um, your field is also interested in sort of these odder dynamics and things like that. So if someone comes in and they're especially messed up, physically, so to say, that there'd be a place where they say, okay, here's this particularly odd patient. Let's discover what their mechanisms did. Because um, I think that that brings us back into the realm of scientific discovery. And I think that a lot of the times when people do these more like battle the algorithms, what can have that has the best predictive ability, that they forget that they're actually trying to discover things about the real world. Um, Oh yeah, and then yeah, then you know, but yeah, a hundred percent. And like you said, you highlight that it's very important that that that's what we're doing. And so yeah, and the nature of the the yeah, the nature of scientific discovery. I think we we do need to do more of that. So I think we're getting there. You know, and I even think about you know, and kind of maybe dovetailing into some other arena. I think what you know, some of these other groups that have probably been around longer, you know, who've done cancer research. I think they've done a lot better job of you know making data sets publicly available. And getting out there because, like you said, when you wanted to do these kind of machine learning algorithms and say, here's this data set, you know, who can generate the best one? I think that other groups, you know, that that leads to, you know, I, I think that there's a camaraderie in that we're all trying to solve this together. And I think that does talk about the availability of data sets and, and, and identifying these unique things. So, um, yeah, I think our group is getting there. I just think it's kind of being young um, that we're not there yet. But I, I know there's some work, I think, out by Stanford, by Scott Delp, where they're trying to develop these larger databases that we can all use for, for biomechanics databases, so that we can make some of these bigger strides in these scientific discoveries. Yeah. So sort of like a biobank, but for physiological gate injury and things like that? Yeah, that would be huge. Because I, I, I mean, I think, you know, and, and me struggling from the fact that, if, you know, struggling to even get these clinical partnerships, it would be great just to have that data. You know, I, I would just you know, to, to, um, to sort through. So yeah, I think a, a biobank for biomechanics would be, would be ideal. Mm -hmm. What, um, just out of curiosity, what, if, if you, let's just say that like the, like all ACLs became ironclad from here on out. And, uh, so you had to just jump into something else. Obviously, um, you still have the, um, these dynamical systems that you're trying to model. Um, and if you, what, what would sort of be the, most, uh, is it be most tangential? So the ones that are closest, but not, uh, not exactly the same in your field, where, where, where would those subjects be? Um, I mean, I guess like things like I mentioned, patel from oral pain or stress fractures, I think they're, they're a different type of lower extremity injury, mm -hmm. um, that are going to manifest differently. Um, what I think would be exciting about those, and it's not that I don't love ACL injuries. I do, they're, you know, they're my first love, but I, you know, what I learned about patella femoral pain, you know, and things of that nature is it's a more subtle injury in general. So I think that we'd have to, you know, refine our metrics even more. We'd have to, I think it'd be a ch more challenging problem. So I, I think that's where we'd like to go because if someone's had surgery and, and on their knee, you would expect that their gait is going to be disruptive. But if patella femoral pain, we've never had surgery, you're just exhibiting knee pain. Can we actually detect pain from gait? I think that would be amazing. Um, and then, you know, going still with sports, stress fractures, they're, they're a huge problem. So can we start to detect, again, subtleties in your movement that um, would be bigger predictors of this stuff? So I think that's where we would go and start to say, okay, we, we've tackled ACL injury. <laughs> Give us a couple more years, right? We'll, we'll finish ACL injury. 
but we would like to get them to more lower extremity problems that have more subtleties and changes in the movement. Yeah. And uh, just as a last question, because when you say one thing, it pops up the next idea. Um, uh, back to the cases of, for example, people with cognitive decline, so um, or a neurological uh, problems, because obviously those are two different things. But um, I'll talk about cognitive decline now. Um, so because I'll do that. Uh, but yeah. So um, do you think that there's value in? Um, and trying to identify, for example, a person's like, you know, ability for like self-sufficiency and things like that, where effectively you can look at their gait and start deciding, you know, how well stabilized are they? Um, how capable are they of being independent? So just like you'd be saying to a soccer player, yeah, you can go hit the field again. You might also be equally as valuable, if I'd probably say more so to be able to tell a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old, um, you know, you are still free to live independently and things like that. Um, is is that an area that could be explored further? Yeah, and, and and that's work that people are doing. Like you said, yeah, we want to figure out what is your independence and is your gait stable? Um, because we know fall risks are a big predictor of kind of cognitive decline and, and, and more injury. So yeah, people are working in that arena. And you're right. I think it's 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 equally and more so important than an ACL injury to get an athlete back to playing soccer as you really want to improve someone's quality of life and, and make sure that they're going to maintain that. So a hundred percent. There's a lot of fields that were that a lot of people that are doing this work. So we're kind of the newbies in this arena. But um, yeah, the the idea of like, can we quantify the stability of your gait is, is going to be huge and has a big effect, like you said, on this aging population. Cool, Kristen. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Um, we've gotten better. Uh, we went from uh, taking, I guess, what? Well, it was one year between the uh, the flubbed recording and our subsequent recording for the critical reasoning episode. Mm -hmm. And now we've done, it has been quite six months, is it? No, like maybe. Yeah, yeah, it's been about six, six months. So at this rate, um, we'll see you back in about three months. Um, so like your own models, ours, ours will be linear. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, but we'll, this isn't the last we've seen of Kristen Morgan. So Kristen, thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great. <laughs> hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you want to go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed on the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employer's views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.